Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, COVID-19 technical lead at the World Health Organization on the pandemic's latest threats. We had members of China CDC join our technical advisory group for virus evolution, where they presented an overview of what is circulating in the country. They participate in our technical groups. We've invited them to participate and they join. We just need a bit more information from them. Factcheck.org's Lori Robertson checks in and we end with a bright idea. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. January 20 is an ominous health anniversary. It's the date of the first official COVID case reported in the U.S. That milestone was three years ago, and all of our lives have been upended since then. Uh, At the center of the storm is the World Health Organization. It's a United Nations agency with a budget over $8 billion a year. And here to give us the latest details is Maria Van Kerkhove. She is the World Health Organization technical lead for the COVID-19 response. Welcome back. Happy to New Year. Nice to be here. We're glad you're you're back with us. And, you know, we know WHO and others are tracking over 500 Omicron sublineages and that the XBB.1.5 is the one that's increasing the fastest in our country. And you said it's the most transmissible subvariant the scientists have detected so far. Can you tell our audience what your current read on the situation is? Um, the subvariant that you mentioned, this XBB.1.5, is one of more than 500 sublineages of Omicron that we're tracking. We, meaning WHO and the global community. This subvariant is actually a recombinant of two BA.2 sublineages. You would have heard of XBB, um, which caused some outbreaks in a few countries around the world. And this is a further evolved variant of that one. It is detected in about 38 countries, but so far there are around 5,000 sequences that are available globally. Most of the sequences are available from the U.S. There are some estimates of how much XBB.1.5 is circulating in the U.S. U.S. CDC has revised their estimates recently, actually downward. Um, It was around 40.5% a few weeks ago. It went down to 27%. And however, in the northeast part of the U.S., it's it's more than 70% of the sequences there. So we have very little data to assess this subvariant, but all of these variants, we look at several things. One is transmissibility. And this subvariant has a growth advantage. And we look at transmissibility by growth advantage. This one has mutations in it that allow the virus to adhere to the cell and replicate very efficiently. But it also has properties of immune escape, which is similar to XPV, which is similar to all of the Omicron subvariants. We do not have any data on severity yet, and we don't we can't say if it's more or less severe compared to the other Omicron subvariants, but we don't have an indication that it's more severe and it doesn't have any of the mutations that are known to confer more severe disease. So we recently published a risk assessment online, but I just want to put this in context. This is one of many sublineages that are circulating. And I think the world is really kind of fascinated by each of these sublineages that are reported and detected. But for the everyone that's out there, what is important that they need to know is that all of these sublineages behave very similarly. They're incredibly transmissible. Mm-hmm. Um, they have properties of immune escape, which means you will get reinfected. We're in the fourth year of this pandemic, which I can't believe I'm even saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have been infected, they've been vaccinated, but there's been a certain amount of time from their last boost. And immunity over time wanes for infection, it stays pretty robust for severe disease, but people will get reinfected, but our vaccines continue to work. So what is important for the viewer out there 
is especially if you're in an at-risk group, make sure you're vaccinated. When was your last dose? Because it really matters, particularly if you're in a vulnerable group, to get that boost four to six months after you've had your last dose. So it's still out there. I mean, to me, this just illustrates once again that the virus continues to evolve. It is not settled into a predictable pattern. We as a global community and scientists around the world need to remain vigilant to track and assess these. But everyone that's out there really just needs to know, what do I need to do to keep me and my family safe? Well, Dr. Van Kirkhoff, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about your thoughts on China's behavior throughout COVID. Of course, it's, it's been somewhat troubling, but you spent time in China early in the pandemic to get a good feel for how they were dealing with the outbreak. And now they've ended the COVID zero policy uh, that really characterized their response. And we're certainly reading of uh, unofficial death estimates that are astounding. Uh, you've noted that they're not sharing sequencing or data uh, on their experience. What, what's your assessment of what's really going on there? So you're right. I did spend some time there early on in the pandemic, and I was really impressed by the level of information, the level of data, the level of analytics that they are capable of at subnational levels. Right now, they're going through a massive wave of Omicron, lifting of those measures, this virus, as transmissible as it is, is passing through the population. We are working directly with them. They are sharing information. It's just not enough. It's just not as detailed as we would like. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had several um, direct calls where we have three levels of our organization at headquarters, regional office, country office, directly with our counterparts in, in China to discuss transmission dynamics. What's happening? Has it peaked? To show us that epidemiologic analysis to look at the trends. China's huge, even in terms of climatic zones. But more importantly, we need detailed information about hospitalizations around the country, the proportion of patients requiring ICU. They have presented to us their program of response in terms of clinical care capacity, beds, um, access to therapeutics and use of those therapeutics. So that is reassuring to us that they are looking at this comprehensively and really focusing on our population, increasing vaccination coverage, targeting, uh, boosting at-risk groups. And that is encouraging. That is very helpful. But we really need better understanding on the burden and the hospitalizations. And we need more information on the sequences. So we had members of China CDC join our technical advisory group for virus evolution, TAGVE, last week, um, where they presented an overview of what is circulating in the country. Um, the challenge for that is, is they have detected known subvariants, mainly the BA.5 sublineages, but we need those sequences to be shared publicly because there's a handful of people around the world that really can look at this mutation by mutation and they work with us and we want China to work with us to really determine within those BA.5.2 sublineages, those other BA.5 sublineages, is there anything else that is within those sequences, that's different. And we need a global community to look at that. So we've asked them to share more sequences publicly with GISAID, a platform like GISAID, and also to work directly with us to do a full risk assessment, as well as to um, generate what are known as these phylogenetic trees, to look at the molecular epidemiology and to see how these viruses differ and how they diverge within the country and if there's anything that's different. So there is more information that needs to be shared. Communication channels are open and the dialogue is good. We just need more detail. So we're working directly with them. They participate in our technical groups. We have clinical management calls. We have other types of expert groups, and we've invited them to participate, and they join. We just need a bit more information from them. 
Well, I think it's that anxiety that people feel that they're not getting enough information. I think some of the uh, channels have resorted to using satellite images of crematoriums and the large increase that they're seeing there. And that's led several countries, including the U.S., uh, to issue testing mandates for people traveling from China. And there's been a pushback uh, to these measures. We just heard from a former longtime CDC leader, Dr. Richard Besser, that uh, he did not think it would really help because COVID and, and the subvariants are already in this country and they're uh, also around the, the globe. What's WHO's position and what should countries do? I mean, the, the virus really is everywhere. Um, you know, we have millions of cases that are reported every week. Um, between 10 and 14,000 people die every week from COVID. That doesn't make the news anymore. And it's just an astounding number. Um, the circulation of the different variants, in terms of which ones are where, it varies. There isn't one specific one that's dominant worldwide, but the virus is everywhere. Um, I think the measures that countries have put in place have put them in place because they didn't know, because they weren't getting the information out of China that they would like to see. We always advise countries to do to take a risk assessment, risk-based approach, and to ensure that the measures that they do put in place are reaching that risk. Um, I think what people need to do everywhere, we, you know, and a lot of people are focused on China right now, as they should, um, because it's so acute right now. But we as WHO are not getting data from most countries around the world in terms of what we need to assess the impact of COVID going forward. We're in a completely different situation than we were three years ago. We will see cases and we will see um, waves of infection, but the impact, the resulting hospitalizations and deaths has been declining over time. And that's fantastic because we have diagnostics, patients are getting into the clinical care pathway early. We have antivirals for early in, in disease. We have many therapeutics focusing on severe disease and we have vaccines. So what people need to know is that as they live their lives and people are living their lives to do it as safely as possible, think a little bit about what you're doing every day. Keep that mask with you. Wear a mask when you're with around others, and especially when you're indoors or you don't know where the ventilation, if the ventilation is any good when you're on public transportation, get vaccinated and look out for your loved ones who are in an at-risk group. Make sure that they get the care that they need. There's so many tools that exist. I mean, of the global challenges that we face right now, COVID has solutions. Three, four years in now, we've got flu, RSV, mm -hmm. strep A, MPOX, Ebola, cholera. You know, there's so many other things that are happening. We have to deal with COVID in the context of everything else. So it's about calibrating the response going forward. But as individuals, Individuals should be empowered with the knowledge about what is around them. What is my risk? What do I do to, to go to work and to get my kids to school? Um, but not be not live life in fear. Know that there's a lot that you could do to keep you and your and your kids and your parents and your grandparents safe. Well, that's so interesting. I, I was thinking as you said it, I really have developed my automatic risk assessment as I opened the door to a restaurant or to a store with your mask ever at the ready. So thank you. I do want to go back uh, to this situation in China a little bit, but really it's a, a question for the world. Um, experts, uh, including our, our friend and now retired Dr. Fauci, uh, have, have noted the Chinese vaccines as being less effective uh, than the Western uh, developed ones. What role do you think that is playing in the current problems in China? And of course, it leads to the question of what more can the world community do 
I mean, there are many, many safe and effective vaccines that are used around the world, and some are of, you know, are more um, effective than others. The data that we have seen on, on the Chinese vaccines that are being used, and there are several that are in use right now, and they're introducing more as we speak. When you boost with them, the immunity really increases, I think, and protects against severe disease and death. So what is really critical within the population of China, 1.4 billion people, is that everyone over the age of 60, anyone who is immunocompromised, really needs that third and that fourth dose. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're focused on right now, because that boost really kicks up that, that immunity uh, level. I think the challenge in China is that because they have had this dynamic zero, this zero COVID policy, there was no um, population level immunity increasing because of infection. And so many parts of the world um, that didn't have access to vaccine have had immunity increase because of infection and several waves of infection. Remember, this is the fifth variant of concern. And we've had many waves over these three years. Um, the vaccine uh, use in China was really how that population level immunity was increasing. Now that's changing. Now they have more of this hybrid immunity because they've had this massive wave of Omicron. Um, and if you remember a year ago, try to think back when Omicron was first detected and what we saw around the world. At WHO, when we were drawing our epi curves, we had to recalibrate the scale because at the peak, we had 23 million cases reported in one week. And we knew that that was a gross underestimate of what was actually circulating. Now it's around five, six, no, sorry, it's around maybe two to three million reported to us. And that's in the backdrop of a significant decline in, in sampling and testing. So they're going through what most countries went through about a year ago, but they didn't have that population level immunity from infection and or vaccination. And I think that's the challenge. That's what the focus is now. Make sure those vaccines that are in country are targeting the at risk. And we've offered and many countries have offered to um, add additional mRNA vaccines into their portfolio. And it's a matter of them willing to accept them and to use them, but the, the global community is there to support. I think, you know, we hear a lot about the politics and the fights and the, and the arguments, but the global solidarity, you know, from public health professionals, from scientists, I think you know this firsthand, doesn't matter who is in power, who is in authority, we're here for each other. And I think that's the real human spirit and the real solidarity of this, which to me has helped get me through these last three years. You know, I want to pull the thread on two things that you said. One, it's not just China where you're not getting information, places like Brazil, even parts of the United States, which makes this forecasting a challenge. And yet, on the other hand, you have partnerships with scientists in all these countries. And I think in your own words, a WHO superpower. But tell yes. me, is there a disconnect between governments and the maybe the private scientists that you're having a relationship with, or is everybody in sync here? I think on a scientific level, on a public health level, I feel that we are in sync. Um, during this pandemic, we as WHO have had the opportunity to, to reach out to so many more technical disciplines, so many more scientists and countries because everybody went virtual. Our reach and our listening ability has really grown. And I do think it is a superpower of ours. You know, people want to work with us because they want to contribute. I really wholeheartedly believe that. I think there is a challenge between the scientific and public health world and the political world mm -hmm. because there are different factors at play. You know, we come to this looking at, at from a scientific and a public health point of view. 
But we also have changed our view in saying it's never only a health issue. It's an economic issue. It's a political issue. You need people that are in power that will stay in power. You need uh, the economies to be able to rebound. You need the financing to deal with this. Most of the financing for COVID was pulled from somewhere else. And now governments are saying, we don't have the fiscal space anymore. It's contracting over time. And what we're trying to do is work with governments to ensure that the threat assessment is accurate, that it's realistic. We can't just stick our head in the sand and say, no one wants to talk about COVID, so we're not going to talk about COVID anymore. In fact, I would love to not talk about COVID. So maybe you can invite <laughs> me back sometime when I don't have to talk about COVID. We will. But we have to deal with this because COVID is here to stay, but we can manage it. And we have to manage it from a health point of view in our stronger, sustained health systems. We need the financing to support our workforce and our health systems. And we need the political backing, you know, to be able to say this is a priority. That's the shift we're and I think we're in a long, messy transition. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's just like, okay, when are we done with the pandemic? Make it endemic. Let's move on. But I think this transition phase of getting to longer term respiratory disease management will take a little bit more time, unfortunately. The World Health Organization Director General recently predicted 2023 would be the year that COVID would no longer be deemed a public health emergency. Or based on what you're seeing in this first month of the year, are we likely to be into this for a longer period? I know that's a little bit of crystal ball gazing versus uh, scientific analysis, but what's your thought? It is a bit crystal ball and and it's very difficult to predict. I mean, the short answer is I don't know, but I think we can end this emergency everywhere because we have the tools to do so. They exist they exist at the right supply. We're just not utilizing them most effectively around the world. I mean, 30% of the world still has not received a, a single vaccine. You know, we're doing better at trying to reach the targets of 100% of our health workers around the world, 100% of our at-risk populations, but we're not there yet. In every country in the world, including in the U.S., we're missing key demographics in terms of that. And we have to deal with access and reach. We have to deal with misinformation and disinformation, which is absolutely rampant. Trust has been eroded over time. And, you know, it's so hard won and so easily lost. So we have to keep up that dialogue. But I am really hopeful. And this is a scientific hopeful. This is, (laughs) we can do this. I, I really believe it because we have the tools that exist. If we didn't have a vaccine, I would love to see new inhaled vaccines that could focus on preventing transmission. That would be a game changer. We have therapeutics. Others need to be a lot cheaper, need to be more accessible, but they cover the full spectrum of disease from the antivirals early on all the way through corticosteroids. You know, it's possible. The thing that scares me the most is the complacency and the sheer fatigue and trauma we've gone through. Because I think the entire world has gone through something quite incredible. We have not even begun to mourn the loss of tens of millions of people. And I think that that's something that we're going to have to deal with the mental health aspects of this going forward. Long COVID, post-COVID condition is going to be with us for some time. We have to focus and research that. But I am hopeful that we can do this. We have to collectively put our efforts um, together to do that. And that's also in the context of war and other crises and other conflicts. Let me just ask a question about... um trust in treaties, if you will. One, you sort of made the point that it's uh, hard to win people's trust, uh, easy to lose it. We seem to have lost it. I'd love to know what your message is to individuals who have basically said, I believe in all of the 
other information that's coming out to how, how do we move them because what we're doing now hasn't moved them. And then the issue of treaties, government to government. So how governments work with each other. And you all have launched an initiative around uh, treaties. But if you could talk about both the individual trust and then maybe the trust that happens amongst governments in terms of laying out a strategy uh, for moving forward. I think in the individual trust, um, I think those who are really, who don't trust government, who don't trust scientists, who believe in the conspiracy, which are incredibly persuasive. I wonder how many of them will be watching this because I think what we need to do is reach individuals and listen to individuals in different types of fora under with different types of channels, with different types of engagement. We've worked really hard to work with communities faith-based leaders, youth leaders, any leaders in communities to understand, first and foremost, to understand where it's where it's coming from. Is it a misunderstanding? The vaccines were produced so quickly, so perhaps you skip some steps. I mean, some of these are questions that can be answered, and there are others that are will be very difficult. I think this is something we, as an organization, you know, fighting this infodemic um, dealing with with misinformation and worse disinformation is something that we're really going to have to tackle and come up with innovative ways to do so going forward. The treaty to me is a promise, our promises by governments to each other, to their people, to the world. And to me, I find it quite inspiring that these discussions are happening. I'm not involved in the day-to-day discussions of those, and we have some amazingly dedicated people who are, and it's complicated, and I know that. But to me, that treaty or accord or whatever it's called is a promise. We owe it to our people, whether you're a government leader or not, to do better the next time. It didn't have to be this way. We didn't need to have this level of death and devastation, but we're dealing with it and we are doing our best to minimize the impact going forward. Well, Dr. Van Kerkhove, thank you for your work uh, and the World Health Organization for its dedication to promoting health and public health uh, and keeping the world safe. And thank you to our audience for being here. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email updates at chcradio.com. Dr. Van Kerkhove, thank you again so much and best of luck. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and happy new year. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Several European countries have reported a spike of group A strep infections, mostly among children, including cases of rare but deadly bacterial infections. There is no evidence the increase is being caused by nasal spray flu vaccines, as social media posts have baselessly suggested. Flu vaccination may even indirectly prevent strep A. Strep A can cause several diseases, such as scarlet fever, strep throat, or empatigo. But in rare occasions, it can get into certain parts of the body or bloodstream, causing a serious disease called invasive group A strep, or IGAS. 
Several deaths associated with eye gas have been reported in children in the UK, France, and Ireland since September. In the UK, there were more than 27,000 notifications of scarlet fever from September 12th to December 18th, compared with about 3,000 for the same period in the last comparably high season. Health authorities have said cases of eye gas remain rare, but are also higher than normal. England has reported 94 deaths in all age groups, including 21 deaths in children under the age of 18. In the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is examining a potential increase in eye gas among children as well. The WHO and the CDC have said the surge is likely associated with the increase in other respiratory viral infections, such as influenza and RSV. The CDC noted that people with viral infections are at increased risk for eye gas. But people who oppose vaccines are pushing a different theory, baselessly suggesting a link between the spike in deadly strep infections and nasal spray flu vaccines. The CDC recommends that everyone six months and older get a flu vaccine every season. The nasal spray flu vaccine, one of several options, is approved for healthy people who aren't pregnant ages 2 to 49. During the 2019-2020 season, the flu vaccine prevented more than 100,000 hospitalizations and 6,000 deaths associated with the flu. There is no evidence that the nasal spray flu vaccine causes or increases susceptibility to strep A. The nasal spray flu vaccine contains weakened flu viruses that are not able to reproduce in the lungs. Strep A diseases are caused by bacteria, not viruses. Instead, being sick with the flu can facilitate the entrance of bacteria into the body. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. While the world grapples with a global pandemic, public health experts have been simultaneously battling another ongoing health threat. Mosquitoes are considered one of the deadliest animals on Earth, leading to hundreds of millions of illnesses and some 2.7 million deaths per year globally. And diseases such as malaria, dengue fever, and Zika are on the rise. So there's this one mosquito called Aedes aegypti that transmits a range of different viruses to people. They include viruses like yellow fever, dengue fever, chikungunya, Zika, and the consequences can be very dire um, from a loss of life through to um, you know, a crippling uh, social and economic cost. Dr. Scott O'Neill is the director of the World Mosquito Program, which has developed an innovative approach to eradicating the threat. I was particularly interested in this bacterium called Wolbachia. This bacteria is present in up to 50% of insects naturally, but not this one mosquito that transmits all these viruses. When we put the bacterium into the mosquito, the viruses couldn't grow any longer in the mosquito. So we're seeding uh, populations of mosquitoes with our own mosquitoes that contain Wolbachia. We're able to spread the mosquitoes across very large areas very quickly. Once the mosquitoes have it, they're protected from being able to transmit viruses. 
And when they're protected, the humans are protected as well. Dr. O'Neill's team released the genetically modified mosquitoes into a targeted area, and the results showed a dramatic reduction in human infections. In northern Australia, we um, deployed the Woolback here over quite large areas, entire cities, and we've seen essentially a complete elimination, 96% reduction in dengue in those cities. We believe if we can scale this intervention across entire cities, we can completely prevent the transmission of diseases like dengue, chikungunya, zika. The World Mosquito Program is one of six finalists in the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and Change competition, which awards a $100 million grant to innovative public health interventions. We're hoping that over the next five years, we could bring this technology to protect 75 to even 100 million people. And we would hope within 10 years, we could bring this intervention to 500 million people. The World Mosquito Program, an effective, targeted, genetic engineering approach to eradicating the threat of deadly mosquito-borne pathogens, leading to a dramatic reduction in harm to public health. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and chcradio.com.